You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 5. We will read verse 18 through verse 29 together. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing, and the Father will show Him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears My word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as those who, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. He gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Let's pray together and ask God's blessing on our time. Our Father, we do need your help to understand your word. We thank you, O Spirit of God, that you have inspired your word, that it is infallible, that it is inerrant, that it is true. And by this, we understand and know all things. We thank you that you have given it to us. And now we pray, O Spirit of God, that you would be our teacher that your word would be our guide and that you would help us to understand these very complicated things, that you might be glorified and that we might see and behold the glory of Christ in the gospel. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. There's something about mankind and men that, and by, by when, I, when I say men, I mean mankind just in general. There's something about mankind and, and men, humanity, that is hardwired to love justice and to want justice. We are moral creatures and there's something intuitively inside of us that does not like it when, when right, wrongs are not righted and when justice is not done. Something goes against the very fabric of our being and we sense it and we know it when we see guilty people go free on a technicality or innocent people punished for something that they have never done. It seems morally wrong to us and it is because it is part of that conscience that we have and that moral law of God which is written on our hearts, which we know, and that intuitive sense of justice and desire for justice to be done and wrongs to be righted is part of the conscience that God has given to us. It's part of our moral fabric, our moral makeup. You'll notice that animals do not have a sense of justice. They don't have any sense of culpability or right and wrong. The law of God is not written on the hearts of animals. You're your milking cow or your donkey can step onto your big toe and grind it into powder and sit there and gaze off into the distance while it's chewing its feed 
without any seeming sense of moral culpability whatsoever. And you can scream and beat it and curse at it and say all kinds of vile and profane things to it, and it will not sense that it has done anything wrong at all. Kangaroos do not have court. You notice that? Animals do not hold court for other animals that violate moral standards. A cheetah can chase down a zebra and chew its throw it out and kill it and eat it. And the zebras don't have court for the cheetahs that do this. And cheetahs don't hold themselves accountable. Man is different than all of the animals in, in this way. Well, a lot more than this way, and you can be thankful for that. But at least in this way, that we are moral creatures because we are made in the image of a moral God. And we, he is a moral lawgiver and he has given a moral law and he has written that moral law on our hearts. And so we have a moral sense of justice and rightness and wrongness. And there is something innately satisfying and at the same time terrifying about the thought of justice, isn't there? We like plot lines where in the end the criminal gets what is coming to him. Where the bad guy does does his thing and there is the conflict in the story in the movie in the book or however it works out. Where the bad guy does his thing and he, he tramples over all of the standards of right and wrong and he does horrible crimes. But then at the end, when the bad guy gets what is coming to him and the good guy with the white hat wins and he hangs the bad guy, however that works out, he hangs the bad guy and the bad guy gets it, there is a sense in which we are satisfied. Nobody likes, or at least normal people do not like, Storylines that do not have a happy and satisfying ending where justice is done. We want to know that justice is done. There's something innate in us that longs for that and loves that and we feel cheated when wrongs are not put right. We don't like the stories where the innocent suffer and the bad guy goes free. So there's something about the side of just, uh, the, the idea of justice that is at the same time both satisfying and terrifying. We're satisfied because we, we want to know that there is a final reckoning where ultimately good wins and wrongs are righted and justice is done. That satisfies something in us. We want to see that happen. It just is not satisfying to think that this life is all there is. Does it really satisfy that moral sense of justice inside of you to think that Hitler, after killing far in excess of six million people, destroying a number of countries, wrecking half of a continent, throwing the entire world into chaos, is able to die peacefully in the arms of his mistress. Does that satisfy your sense of justice? Or do you have to say, there's got to be something beyond this life where justice is finally done and judgment is executed upon the guilty? It's satisfying, isn't it? But at the same time, it's terrifying because... You and I have this creeping suspicion in the back of our minds that though we want to see justice done, we suspect that in the end, if justice is done, we are in big trouble. Right? If justice is done, as much as I want the satisfaction of seeing justice done, something tells me that if it is done and I get what's coming to me, I am in big trouble. Because I realize that I have not paid for all of my crimes in this life. And it is not possible for me to pay for all of my crimes in this life. So though it's satisfying, it is at the same time terrifying because we want justice to be done. And this is why unrighteous, ungodly, unsaved, unredeemed people are self-righteous. You ask an unredeemed, unsaved individual how they view themselves and it will always be this. I am a good person. I am a good person. 
They want justice to be done, but they just don't think that they deserve justice. They think them, they themselves to be good people. And so it's always justice on other people. I want him to face justice, and he should face justice, and that person should face justice, but me, not me, because I'm good. I don't deserve justice. That's what makes unrighteous people self-righteous. They're actually unrighteous, but they're self-righteous because they don't want to admit that if justice is done, if they get what they want, they would be in big trouble. So we are moral creatures who are made in the image of a moral God, and God has written that moral code on our hearts, and we want justice to be done. And it is incredibly satisfying to us to realize that in the end, there will be a judgment, and justice will be done. And who is going to execute that judgment upon guilty lawbreakers? It is going to be God that does that. And since we know that, and we know that God is the just judge of all the earth, and that He is the judge of all the nations, and He is the judge of all peoples, then that makes Jesus' claim in John chapter 5, verse 22, incredibly significant and important because it is a strong argument to His deity when He says in verse 22, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. We want judgment to happen, and we want, it to, we want to be satisfied by that judgment, and we know that God is the just judge of all the earth. And so when Jesus says to His hearers, The Father does not judge anyone, but has given all judgment to the Son, they would have understood exactly what Jesus was saying, and that is that He was claiming to be none other than God, because God is the exclusive judge of all people, and that judgment happens exclusively through the Son. Now in the context, we're looking at basically two works that Jesus is laying claim to that were the work, exclusive work, of God, and the Jews thought these were exclusive works of the Father. The one in verse 21 was the work of resurrection. Just as the Father gives life to whomever He wishes, even so the Son gives life to whomever He wishes. There's a parallel there. Up in verse 17, Jesus laid claim to being Lord of the Sabbath and being able to do the works of God on the Sabbath and thus have control over and authority over the Sabbath and to be basically God because He was the Son of God. In verses 19 and 20, Jesus said that everything that He did was the works of the Father and all that He did was the works of the Father and everything that the Father did, He did. What type of works did Jesus do? Verse 21, the work of resurrection. And now in verse 22, we're going to look at this work of judgment. The work of judgment. The Son executes judgment. These two works are connected, by the way. They're distinct. They're distinct things. Resurrection is different than judgment. But the two must and do go together because to imply the power and the authority and the prerogative to raise all men from the dead is to, to, to claim that power is to imply that you also have the power and the prerogative to judge all men. Because before all men can be judged by God, they must be raised from the dead by God. So there will come a time when death and Hades will give up the dead that are in them, the sea will give up the dead that are in them, all of the dead will stand before this great white throne, and there will be a judgment that takes place. And when Jesus claims the ability and the prerogative to raise men from the dead, all men, whomever He wishes, physical resurrection and spiritual resurrection, he is also implicitly claiming that he has the right to judgment. But he doesn't leave it just to an implication. He actually makes the statement in verse 22, not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. So two foundational, fundamental truths that I want you to notice from John chapter 5. Number one, that God is exclusively the judge of all the earth. Judgment is exclusively God's domain. And then second, now that's kind of the background truth behind verse 22. Second, that judgment is exercised exclusively by the Son. So judgment is exclusively God's work, and judgment is exercised exclusively by the Son. Now what does that tell you about the identity of the Son? You can put two and two together, can't you? 
Yeah, the Jews who were standing in front of Jesus when he said this could put two and two together too. They understood exactly what he was claiming. Judgment is exclusively, exclusively belongs to God and judgment is exclusively exercised by the Son. So let's flesh that out. Let's look first of all at judgment being the exclusive domain of God. When Jesus said that not even the Father judges anyone, stop just right there for a second, verse 22. When he said that, that would have gone somewhat contrary to what the Jews would have thought. The Jews would have thought, and they would have said that the Father was the one who judged all men. When they had no room in their theology for distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or the doctrine of the Trinity, as you and I would understand it, as the New Testament sort of unfolds, they wouldn't have understood that, but they would have equated the term Father with God in a monotheistic sense. And we're not polytheistic by, polytheist by believing that the Son and the Spirit are God. But they would have associated the term God with Father, or Father and God being synonymous. And they would have thought that the Father was the agent and the person and the being who would judge all men. So when Jesus says in verse 22 that not even the Father judges anyone, this would have run contrary to what the Jews thought, though the Jews believed that God, and they believed this rightly, that God was the judge of all men and all people. Now you know that I could go on for the rest of this morning and the rest of the afternoon and even probably a couple of days just reading to you passages from the Old Testament and the New Testament that speak of the judgment of God. But I just want to read a couple of them to give you a flavor of how these verses describe the judgment of God. Genesis 18.25 Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And there Abraham is speaking and Abraham is describing God's judgment and God himself, the Lord, Yahweh, being the rightful judge of all the earth. He is the judge of all the earth. Shall he not do rightly? 1 Samuel 2.10 Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. First Chronicles 16.33 Then the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. What a picture that is, by the way. The trees singing for joy at the, at the God of creation coming to judge the earth. Psalm 82, verse 8, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. Psalm 94, 1 and 2, O Lord, O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, render recompense to the proud. Psalm 96, 12 and 13, Let the field exult in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for He is coming. For He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. And then similar wording in Psalm 98, verses 8 and 9. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord. For He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And I haven't even dipped into the prophets. And you know how the prophets spoke of the judgment of God, right? The prophets described the motives and the timing and the type of judgment and the things that God would judge and the reasons for God's judgment and who would be the ju- doing the judging. It would be God. And who would be getting judged? It would be the nations and the peoples and the land of Israel. Isaiah 5, verse 16, But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment, and the Holy God will show Himself holy in righteousness. God, who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, He never changes. He is righteous, He's holy, He's just, and He is the judge of all the world. He is the judge of all nations. He is the judge of all people. He is the judge of each individual person. And every wicked person who has ever lived and died impenitent and unrepentant and unbelieving and unredeemed will stand before that just judge of all the earth and he will do what is right. God is the exclusive judge of all men and all mankind. Psalm 94, sorry, 89, Psalm 89 verse 14 says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. 
I love that passage. Justice and righteousness are the foundation of His throne. It seems quite appropriate that God would be the one to judge all men. Is it not? I mean, the ability to judge or the prerogative to judge people shouldn't rest within the realm of or the sphere of mere mortals or mere men. It shouldn't be the prerogative of angels to do that. God seems to be the only one who is qualified to act as judge for a number of reasons. Let me just offer you three reasons why God is the best person to be the judge. And you'll see how these parallel Jesus' judge here in just a second. First of all, God is the one and the only one who has authority to judge. He's the one who possesses all of the nations. It wouldn't be right for a mere man to be the judge of all men or even an angel to be the judge of all men. God himself is the only one who possesses unqualified and unlimited authority over all that he has created. It must be the judge of all of the universe and all of creation and all of the world and all men. It must be God who is the judge of all of those things because only God has that type of authority by virtue of the fact that he created all things. Does not the potter have right to do with the pot and the clay, whatever he chooses, whatever he desires to do? Surely he does. So God is the only one who possesses that authority to be the judge, to act as the judge of all men. Second, God is the only one, really, is the perfect judge because of the the character qualities that he enjoys and that he has. After all, he is good and he is righteous and he is true and he is holy and he is just and he is loving, kind. Loving is he loving kind? I don't even know if that's an adjective. He possesses loving kindness. He is merciful and compassionate and gracious. And he is infinite in all of those attributes. And he has all of those attributes all at the same time in perfection and in infinitude. And just as he is infinite in authority and infinite in power, so he possesses all of those moral attributes in their perfect state and in infinite form. So God never has to sacrifice justice to be kind or loving. And he never has to sacrifice love in order to be just. Because he is infinitely just, and he is at the same time infinitely kind and loving. So the two go together. And God never has to try and sacrifice one attribute or satisfying one attribute at the expense of another attribute. Because he has all of those qualities and all of those characteristics. And furthermore, God is omniscient. That makes him the perfect judge. Because there will be no defense attorneys, and no jury, and, and no finding of facts, and no finding of evidence, and no courtroom banter back and forth. The wicked will not be able to stand before the judge of all the earth and, and try and trick him, and there's no jury to try and sway one way or the other with the argument. No prosecuting attorney, there's no defense attorney. The books will be opened, the rap sheet will be read, all of the facts will be there. And the judge of all the earth knows everything. So there will be no transgression overlooked, no indiscretion passed over, and no crime unanswered for. Not a single crime against his law will go unanswered for. Every disobedience to parents, every blasphemy, every word and secret uttered in darkness, every gossip, every slander, every lustful thought, Every thought unworthy of Him, every act of idolatry, every act of selfishness, every motive of the heart will be revealed, and every last crime against humanity will be read before God, who knows every last crime that anybody has ever committed against Him. Does that satisfy your sense of justice just yet? Think it's possible for that courtroom to be um, called a halt to because of some technicality? It won't be. It can't be. The just judge of all the earth will do what is right. And he is infinitely wise. And so in his infinite wisdom, he knows just how to handle every criminal and every crime. 
And when that rap sheet is read, and I just want you to ask yourself, you're under the blood of Christ today. If you're a believer, these sins are taken away, and we're going to deal with that in just a second. But I want you to ask yourself, without Christ, what would my rap sheet look like? If every sin I have ever committed against anyone, and which is against God, were just detailed in a file folder, how thick would my file folder be? How many times have I sinned each day, and how many days have I lived? You do the multiplication and find out what your rap sheet would look like. It would be pretty thick, I think. Mine would be thick. Tell you that, my, my rap sheet would be thicker than my medical file, which is thick enough as it is. A horrible file. Every crime before the omniscient, all-wise God of all of creation. And that perfect wisdom will guide perfect knowledge in seeing to it that perfect justice is done. Now, friends, this is why you and I should never, never exact vengeance or revenge. This is why, because... God says vengeance is mine. He's called a God of vengeance. He says leave room for wrath. Don't seek revenge on your own because you've got to leave room for the wrath of God knowing that God is a vengeful God. He will exact vengeance in His perfect time. You and I should never seek to try and exact on our own behalf justice against some individual for their sin against us or for their sin against somebody else or for their sin against God. And here's why. To do so is to assume that I know everything about the situation and I am able to pass judgment against somebody else for their sin. And thus I am in a perfect position to know infinitely what justice would look like in this situation. And I am in a place to exact that justice on behalf of God to that individual. That's a lot of presumption, is it not? In reality, there are some situations where we don't even know what justice should look like. Our idea of justice is so perverted and so polluted that we can't even see or know what true justice should be in a given situation. So God says, it's not in our purview to do that. We are called to forgive. We are called to wipe the slate clean and be done with it and not exact vengeance because there's coming a day on which God will judge the world in righteousness and He will judge the nations and He will right every wrong and He will set everything back the way it should be. There seems in this life that the scales of justice are just out of whack, right? There's coming a day when they will be balanced and every wrong will be righted and every injustice will be corrected and the exact, appropriate, wise, perfect punishment for every crime against God and humanity will be taken care of. So God is the perfect judge because of the authority that he possesses, because of the moral attributes that he possesses, and also, and this is chilling, because he is the one against whom all offenses have really been committed. See, even the sins that you and I do against one another, our horizontal sins, are really sins against God and God only. David, after he had stolen somebody's wife and killed that individual and covered it up and lied and broken all of the Ten Commandments, David was able to say, it's against you and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. He knew that even though he had sinned against other people, and other people bore the pain and the hurt from that, and those uh, those sins had their effects horizontally amongst other people, still at the same time it was really against God and God only that he had sinned. And so God is the one who was offended by your sin and my sin and Hitler's sin and everybody else's sin. Ultimately, God is the one against whom we have sinned. And so when sinners stand before the courtroom of Almighty God... God will be the prosecuting attorney. God will be the offended party. God will be the judge. He will be the jury. And He will be the executioner. That's chilling, isn't it? Now you understand why Scripture says that on that day there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why Scripture says that there will be calamity and destruction in that day. And why sinners will tremble and call upon the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of this God against whom they have sinned. Now you understand why Scripture warns about the wrath that is to come. Now you understand the seriousness of God and the holiness of God. That the very one whom we have offended, whose laws we have broken, is the lawgiver, the law judge, and the law executioner. All three branches of the government belong to him. He's the lawgiver, 
the law judge, and the law executor. And on that day, every unrepentant, uh, un, impenitent, unrepentant, wicked individual will stand before him, and his just justice will be done. And why am I hashing all of this out? To show you that God himself is the, has exclusive right to be the judge of all men. Nobody else has that right. That's the background behind verse 22. Now look at verse 22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Now if God exclusively is the judge of all men, when Jesus says that He is the judge of all men, what does that tell you about Jesus? So when Jesus says the Father judges no one, is that a contradiction of what we've just established from all the Old Testament passages, New Testament passages, which describe God the Lord being the judge of all people? Is that a contradiction when Jesus says the Father doesn't judge anyone? It's not a contradiction, it's a clarification. Because here what Jesus is saying is, God is the exclusive judge of all men. And I am the exclusive judge of all men. Now you draw your own conclusion as to what that means. This introduces us to something that I mentioned a few weeks ago when we were talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. It's the theological term, economical trinity. I described to you the ontological trinity. By ontological trinity, we mean the doctrine of the trinity when we, as we describe how God exists in and of himself. So when we say that God is three persons in one God, one being, who eternally exists, co-equal, co-eternal persons, three of them, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's an ontological, that is the being. We're describing the being of who God is, how he exists as a being. But when we talk about and we describe the trinity from the standpoint of the persons in the trinity doing different works, we would call that the economical trinity, the economic trinity. That describes how God gets things done. Within the... Within the being of the one God, there are three persons, and those three persons all work distinctly and yet together to accomplish the works that do belong to God. So we read in the New Testament that there are some things that are said to be the work or the activity, the role of all three persons. For instance, the creation of the world is said to be the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. All three persons are attributed, uh, are given um, praise or credit for the work of creation. Likewise with the resurrection of all men. We find that the Father has sovereignty over the resurrection of all men. John chapter 5, verses, uh, verse 21, previous verse. We find that the Son has sovereignty over the resurrection of all men. John chapter 5, verse 21. And we found out back in chapter 3 that the Holy Spirit has sovereignty over the resurrection of all men. Those, that work is given to all three persons of the Trinity. One more example. The resurrection of Christ is said to be the work of the Father. Jesus said he would raise himself from the dead. And Romans 8 says the Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead. So there are some things that are said to have been done and to be done by all three persons of the Trinity. On the other side of that coin, there are some things which are said to only be the work of individual persons of the Trinity, but not the other two. The work of election, for instance. The work of election, the act of election, is not said to be that of the Son. It's not said to be done by the Holy Spirit, but by the Father. The Father has chosen us. The Father has elected us. The Father chooses. That is, the electing work belongs to the Father. Likewise, the Son is said to be the Redeemer and the one who died on the cross. It wasn't the Father who left heaven and clothed himself in human flesh and died on a cross to save his people from their sins. That was the Son who did that. It wasn't the Spirit who left the glories of heaven, took upon himself human flesh, and died on a cross. That was the Son. With the Spirit, the Spirit is the one who gives us the spiritual gifts, who comforts us, who mediates those blessings that the Son has purchased and the Father has predestined. So those different types of works are all said to be works of individual members of the Trinity. So here we have the act of judgment in John chapter 5, verse 22, 
being something that is given to not all three and not two, but singularly one person of the Holy Trinity. And who is it? It is the Son. Within the counsel of the Godhead, it pleased the Father, it pleased the Son, and it pleased the Holy Spirit to have all of the act of judgment and all judgment to be given into the hands to be executed by the Son. That is why Jesus can say, the Father does not even judge anyone. It's not the Father who judges anyone. Furthermore, it's not the Spirit as a person who judges anyone. But all of the judgment of all of mankind, past, present, and future, all of that has been committed to the Son. That is the work of the Son. So the Spirit and the Father and the Son have determined that the Father will elect, the Spirit sanctifies, the Son purchases salvation, and it is the Son Himself who is the judge and the executor of the judgment of God and divine judgment upon all mankind. That is given exclusively to the Son. So that Jesus can say not even the Father judges anybody, but all judgment has been given to the Son. This opens up a whole other can of worms, which I'm not even going to address right now, but I just want you to be aware of it. I believe that that act of judgment is just one of the elements of the entire administration of the kingdom of God, which has been committed to the Son. It's not just judgment which is given to Him, but it is the entire disposal, decrees, determination, execution, everything that has to do with the administration of God and His kingdom among men, past, present, and the future manifestation of that kingdom. All of that has been given to the Son, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the God who will reign on the throne of David. He is the God in whom all of this judgment, all of this rule, and all of this reign has been committed to Him. So the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God is in Jesus Christ, and to Him is given all of the administration of the Father's affairs. And 1 Corinthians 15 says there will come a time when Jesus will take all that the Father has given to him and he will present it back to the God the Father and say, here you go. Everything that you have given to me, I have executed and now I give that all back to you so that God will be all in all. The Father and the Son and the Son and the Spirit and the Spirit pleased with the Father and the Son. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 15. So, judgment belongs exclusively to God and judgment is exercised exclusively by the Son. The Old Testament text predicted that the Messiah would be the judge of all the world. He will delight in the fear of the Lord, and He will not judge by what His eyes see, nor make a decision by what He hears. But with righteousness He will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of His mouth, and with the breath of His lips He will slay the wicked. It's prophecy of the Messiah from Isaiah chapter 11. Jeremiah 23, verse 5, speaking of the branch of David, a righteous branch, says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. They had every reason to expect that the Messiah that was coming would act as a judge. And the Old Testament predicted that that one would be the judge. Now listen to the New Testament. This is where we find out how Jesus is going to be the judge. First Thessalonians, sorry, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 7, there would come a day when He would say to the wicked, depart from me, I never knew you. There will come a day in Matthew 25, 24 and 25 when Jesus will sit on His thrones and all the nations will gather before Him and some will depart into everlasting joy and bliss prepared for them for the foundation of the world and some will depart into the lake of fire prepared for them from before the foundation of the world, for the devil and his angels. Jesus is the one who will judge. Acts 10, 32, Peter says to Cornelius that he was sent to preach the gospel and to solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. 
Paul says that Jesus, God will judge the secrets of men's hearts by His gospel through Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy 4.1, a familiar passage, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God, who will judge what? And of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead by His appearing in His kingdom. He's coming back in judgment. And then Acts 17.31, Paul said in Athens, God is declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent. Because God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man, and He has furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Who is the one through whom God will judge the world? Jesus Christ. And He has proven that that judgment is coming by raising that judge from the dead. Jesus is the judge of all mankind. Now it's quite appropriate that Jesus should be the judge, right? Now you're going to see, I gave you three reasons why God. it's appropriate that God is the judge of all mankind because of His authority, because of his character and his qualities, his moral qualifications, and also because he is the offended party. The same three things apply to Jesus. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to whom? To Jesus, Matthew 28. He has authority to judge all of mankind because all of that authority by the Father has been committed to the Son. So he can act as the judge of all people. And what about Jesus' moral qualifications? Is he infinitely just and wise and good and holy and pure and true and righteous and kind and loving and all of those character qualities? Does he not have those in infinite measure? He does because he's equal with the Father. And against whom have the crimes been committed? Ultimately God, but all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is himself an offended party. And the judge that all men will stand before, that is Jesus, is himself the one who is offended by the sin. It seems fitting and appropriate that God should give the judgment to the Son since the Son is the very one who purchased forgiveness and now proffers that to all of mankind and offers it as a gift. So it seems appropriate that the one who will be the judge of all men is the very one who offered them clemency and forgiveness and acquittal and righteousness to begin with and that men having trodden underfoot that righteousness and counted the blood of his sacrifice as nothing would then someday stand before this one and he will be their judge. I want you to put yourself in the minds of the Jews. Remember what happened back in verse 18? They were seeking all the more to kill him. And now they're standing in front of him, and he is saying to them what? One of these days, you're going to stand before me, and I will be your judge. That is chilling. They were seeking to kill him, and he says to them, you're standing before me now, but there's coming a day when you will stand before me again. And all the judgment of God has been committed into my hands. Wow. I mean, that is, that's a rub if ever there was a rub, is there not? He's the offended party in that. So the very one that men offend by their sin, the very one they will stand before and give an account for their sin and be judged for their wickedness and rebellion. It saddens my heart, but it still satisfies me to know that the artists who take the cross of Christ and submerge it in a jar of urine will stand before Christ and give an account for that if they die as they have lived. It saddens me, but at the same time it satisfies me to know that authors like Dan Brown who blasphemed Christ by suggesting that he was married to Mary Magdalene, had kids, never really died on a cross, and you can't trust the New Testament, will stand before that very one that they have scorned and mocked and rebuked and hated and turned away and shown their contempt for. And that liberal seminary professors who say you can't trust the Gospels and he wasn't born of a virgin, he was a little legitimate child, and he never really did miracles, they're just myths, and he never really rose from the dead, it's just a story. They will stand before that Jesus whom they have scorned and mocked and hated and ridiculed. It seems quite appropriate that men would stand before him, right? So now I ask you this, so what is my relationship to him, to this judge? Ought I as a believer to fear and tremble 
at the thought of facing that day? Should I fear that day? What's the answer to that? Should I as a believer fear giving account to Jesus Christ for my crimes? The answer to that is this. What crimes? What crimes? You see, since I am in Christ, when you open up my folder and you see my rap sheet, there's not a blot of ink anywhere on it. It has been entirely erased. So I find myself in verse 24, which we're not getting to today. You'll be thankful to notice that. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment. I'm clinging to verse 24. I rest and repose my soul on verse 24. He who believes my word and takes me at my word and trusts him and believes upon him who sent me does not come into judgment. So will I stand before Christ and give an account for my crimes? What crimes? What crimes? In Him, all of my sins, past, present, and future, are taken completely out of the way. And by the way, notice that verse 24 is an offer of grace to the very Jews who are seeking to kill Him, who He has just threatened with judgment. Because He says to them, if you will believe Me, if you will turn to Me, if you will embrace the One who has sent Me, if you will honor the Father by honoring the Son and believe My Word, you will pass from death into life and you will not come into judgment. He's just told them, there's judgment coming and I'm the judge, but if you will turn to Me and embrace Me, There's no judgment. No judgment. As hideous as my crimes and my sins have been, there will never be a day when I will stand in the presence of Christ and give an account for those and suffer punishment for them. I need never fear His wrath, for there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And all of my sins have been taken out of the way. And in the courtroom of God's justice, do you know how He sees me and you, if you're a believer in Christ? Innocent. Innocent. He sees you as if you have never violated a single one of His laws, and as if you have kept perfectly all of His laws. Because not only are your sins taken away taken away in salvation, you are imputed or given the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So as I've said before, and I would say it again, you have never been more righteous than you are right now, and you will never be more righteous than you are right now in the sight of God's justice and His courtroom. Practically, I hope that next year I'm more righteous than I am right now. In my practice, but judicially, standing before that judge, He's not my judge. He is my Savior. He is my brother. He is my God. He is my King. He is my rock. He is my deliverer. He is my righteousness, but He is not my judge. He is everything but my judge. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the glorious news of the Gospel. But if you've never trusted Christ for salvation, and if you die as you've lived, that is impenitent, hard-hearted, and without a covering for your sin, you have no righteousness. And all you will face is the just judge of all of the earth. And you will stand before the God, the King, the Savior, who you have mocked and spurned and hated and turned from your whole life and warred against in rebellion. And you will give an account for your sins, and He will be your judge. Because not even the Father judges anyone. All that judgment has been given to the Son. And He will execute it in perfect wisdom, perfect knowledge, and perfect justice. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have provided an escape for the judgment which is to come. We know because there is something inside of us that tells us that justice and righteousness are not fully always done in this life. But there is a reckoning, and there is a day of reckoning. We thank you that ultimately justice will be done in perfect wisdom, in perfect knowledge, perfect righteousness, perfect love. We thank you that you have laid our sins upon Christ on that tree and punished him in our stead. 
We thank You that You have given to us the righteousness that He possessed, that it was His, because He was God in human flesh and because He kept the law perfectly. And so we thank You that we stand in Your courtroom, not a condemned criminal, not a guilty lawbreaker, but as righteous as Your Son, free from all condemnation, past, present, and future. Thank You for Your saving and sanctifying grace. In the name of Your glorious and gracious Son, Jesus Christ, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.